This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Sean Pattenden. As we ponder the current state of our political landscape, many of us are wondering why do people vote for stupid politicians? Or more precisely, why does acting dumb work for politicians? From Trump to Johnson and of course the plat de jour, Liz Trust, as the Tory membership choice, it is time to ponder this as scientifically as we can. And we welcome just the right person to the bunker. Dean Burnett is a neuroscientist, a podcaster, writer and author of books such as The Idiot Brain, which I relate to, The Happy Brain, Psychological and many more. Dean, welcome to the bunker. Well, thank you for having me, Sean. Much appreciated. It's a pleasure. Firstly, you have previously said not all politicians are idiots, but plenty are. Why are they acting dumb? Yes, I think there's obviously there's a line to be drawn between the politicians who are acting dumb and the politicians who are dumb and acting otherwise. <laughs> there's obviously overlap, but there's going to be a tricky balance to separate those two out. There's lots of reasons as to why uh, you know a politician downplaying their own intelligence, uh, intentionally or otherwise, would be advantageous, uh, particularly in the modern system, the modern way of uh, you know how politics works and how it's communicated to people. There's a lot of uh, you know innate qualities of the human brain which lead to this one of which is humans are first and foremost social we are by many definitions the most social species we're often labeled as ultra social and um, you can get other social species which are which hang out in groups and interact with each other like like your rats your chimps you know and all that sort of stuff we are the kings of that we definitely dominate the social sphere but that means other people and our interactions with them have a much bigger impact on us than we realize so much of the human brain is geared towards facilitating and encouraging and maintaining relationships and interactions and that's well, many theories argue that's why we're as smart as we are because uh, you know it's exactly a complex process interacting with another complex human so we have the brains that we need to to maintain this ability so we're very very vulnerable and susceptible to what other people say to us and we're also very hierarchical obviously humans are very very sensitive to status we want someone to sort of, uh, you know, look up to us. We want to be, be liked and admired by the people. And we reject those who challenge our status or like, are not part of our group. So a lot of different dynamics going on there. When it comes to the political side of things, it's also worth taking into account that uncertainty is something that the human brain doesn't react well to. We experience a sort of frisson of stress. Uh, usually, you know, it, it can be anything really, because we have this idea of how the world works. We build up our experience. And everything or anything which challenges that or doesn't fit into it is obviously something to be wary of because if you don't know something works, you, you're, you're an eighth threat detecting parts of the brain don't have the ability to work out how to, what to do about it if it becomes dangerous or a risk or a threat. And therefore, uncertain things make us uncomfortable. And I think that's why you get anti-intellectualism a lot more than you get like anti-physicality. Because athletes are admired, athletes are really looked up to, and because you know you can see like the best athletes in the world, the best sprinters, the best runners, the best uh, football players, whoever. Although you know people look at them and think, well, I, I can't do that, but they understand how they could do that. So like you know, yeah, Lionel Messi is better than I was, but if I was you know 
started playing football at age three and just never stopped, I'd be good too. Yeah, yeah. Whereas someone who is more intelligent than you, by definition, you cannot understand them. They are uncertain. It's like, I, I don't know how to be that intelligent. I don't know how to think and do what they're doing. And that will trigger a sort of a certain degree of discomfort, particularly if it affects you directly, which it would do with politics. You know, if your politician comes on and says, because X, Y, Z, uh, then A, B, C, and that means bad things for you. And uh, that's people are going to, well, that's lots of big words I don't understand. And they made me uncomfortable. And I don't like that. That means if a politician comes on and says, ah, oh, you know, don't worry about it. We're mates. We are, you know, I'm, I'm just like you. That is more reassuring. You feel a more, more of a connection to someone who is on your level. When you're a politician, trying to communicate in like big complex words to show that you understand things is not necessarily the best approach compared to trying to forge an emotional connection on the most basic level with people who, you know, who aren't interested in politics, which most people aren't. So you know, it does help <laughs> yes. you know, to, to appear, quote unquote, dumb in this regard. Yes. And another factor, does it make political rivals, if you are a politician, less likely to see you as a threat? So it's a way of getting in as well by not appearing too intelligent to your cohort in that way. Totally. This is obviously in, in, in the sense of politicians who are are intelligent but pretending not to be. If you're playing the long game, if you're particularly intelligent, you will take this sort of thing into account. If I put my head above the parapet with all the wheelings and dealings behind the scenes, then I'll be tagged as someone, oh, watch out for them. They are, they're at risk my progression. And that's you know, something which people will be wary of if they have these long-term ambitions. There's also the thing that politicians who aren't, uh, you know, who aren't that intelligent, who don't think, who are presenting as intelligent as they are, they won't think in those terms, um, but they would be viewed as less of a threat by other politicians. But because of the way people react to someone who's dumbing down, uh, would actually be more of a threat. So, you know, so it could backfire in that regard as well. Now, tell us the thing about confident people. So this is really interesting, the Dunning-Kruger effect and why politicians can come across as confident, but not necessarily bright. Yeah, Dunning-Kruger effect is uh, it's, it's it's got a bit sort of expanded in, the, in recent years because of because of online, I guess. And uh, but it's when people sort of really overestimate their own abilities, their own uh, capabilities, and it comes about by you know, Dunning and Kruger were the the people who uh, discovered this. It's uh, like when someone does a test, uh, or like, uh, they they think they did really well when they didn't, uh, <laughs> suggesting they're of low intelligence, but they don't recognise that. And what it basically comes from is the fact that correctly assessing your own intelligence requires a degree of intelligence. So you, <laughs> you, know, you need to speculate to accumulate. You need to invest in order yes. to get some back. Yes. Uh, so if you if you lack <laughs> the requisite intelligence to correctly deduce your own intelligence. You won't know that you're unintelligent. <laughs> so, but you're at that ergo, you have no reason to doubt yourself. You won't. Uh, you won't so you swan uh, into a room. <laughs> yeah. So you won't yes. have any reason to think. Well, I must be an expert because I, I think I'm right, and I have no reason to doubt this conclusion. So you you come across more confidently. You just you know we've all encountered the people you know usually online these days, but the person in the pub or the person on the bus who just yeah, well, it's my opinion. I'm going to shout it out loud, and I don't see any reason to change it because. Yes. Any any counter argument, I am un, unable and unwilling to grasp, and they'll just like confidently bleat their own views to anyone who listen, and most people who don't. And yeah, but this makes them look come across more confident, and that's because we are such a social and hierarchical species, we react more on the subconscious level, but more powerfully than we realise to people who are confident. They come across, you know, I think this, and therefore I say it clearly, and that's attractive to our Neanderthal brain. Yes, because you know, as a scientist, it's uh, you know always a thing we say. Well, you should give people the facts and the figures, but 
yes, you should do that, but we haven't really evolved to take that in. We haven't evolved to work in information like that. We can do it, but it's a relatively recent ability of the human brain. And being able to access all the information ever is a very, very recent luxury we, we have as, as, as a people. But other people telling us things confidently has been how our, our lives have been regulated for like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of years. You have a very interesting example in The Idiot Brain where you quote Einstein, who says, the exaggerated esteem in which my life work is held makes me very ill at ease. I feel compelled to think of myself as an involuntary swindler. So he had imposter syndrome. Totally, an intelligent yeah. man did not have the confidence. <laughs> yeah. yeah, The man who is literally the benchmark for being intelligent. <laughs> He's the poster boy for intelligence. And yet, yeah, exactly. yet he, yeah obviously yeah. was having sleepless nights. We're talking about the idea of, you know, these very sort of grand statements, simplistic statements. We may get onto Parkinson's law of triviality at some point. Where are you on a line such as growth, growth, growth? I mean, I've had emails which say that, but not necessarily <laughs> the, uh, of, of the political sort. It's simple. It is a simple line. I mean, it's not even a line. It's the same word repeated. But uh, I think it's, obviously it comes from, you know, get Brexit done, sort of like the simple, easy to digest concept. But I think it wouldn't necessarily work uh, in the same degree because it's very simple, but it does it's too it doesn't tell you anything. Because like, I think most people forget who are into politics that uh, you know, the majority of people aren't. They would rather not be involved. They think, well, someone else take care of the run of the country. I got my own life to live, and I totally respect that. You know, everyone has their own stuff going on. They don't really want to be dragged into yet another psychodrama by <laughs> by the government. And I think that's yes. a very fair sentiment. <laughs> you know, but also people who are in politics have you know only. Typically, they interact with other people who are also into politics, so it becomes, you know, they don't quite get that sort of stance. But yeah, growth, growth, growth. Uh, if you ask someone in the street that, like, what are you talking about? Growth of what? Uh, who, who's growth? You know, like, we're growing the economy. Okay, is that good? Is that bad? I don't know. How does that affect me? The average person are facing increased more mortgage rates, can't afford to put the heating on. Just saying growth, 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 it isn't really helpful. And we saw it in the Brexit campaign, like when the Remain side were trying to reinforce, oh, it's stay in the EU, it'll, like, it'll add 4.3% to our GDP. Like, what? <laughs> How does that affect me, the average voter? I don't know. And I think this is the same thing uh, from, from the different ideological side, but growth, growth, growth doesn't really tell you anything. And it's not something people resonate to. The, the, the phrase get Brexit done, whatever you thought about Brexit, it was dragging on and it was a big stress on everyone. It promised the outcome that it would just go away. And I think that's really, really, oh, get it done. Yes, please make this go away. I'm sick of hearing about it. Not even, whatever your ideological views. Like, I don't want to talk about this anymore. That was that was three years ago. And therefore, people want to move on. So growth, growth, growth. I think it's too simple. It's far too uninformative. It doesn't tell you anything. And I think that's, that's where it'll fall down. You do also talk about um, the neuroscience of people sticking with their decisions. So once they have mm. said, well, okay, right, I am a Brexiteer, they have named themselves. It's actually very difficult to not be that person, to go back on something. It, mm. Does this play into what we're talking about now, simplistic slogans and just saying firmly rooted in your ideological position? Yeah, absolutely. That'll be a big part of it because, and I mentioned it just now, I alluded to it a bit, the way the human brain deals with the world, interacts with it, it's sort of, uh, this is an oversimplification, but it builds up a mental model of how the world works and everything in it and how it operates. So you've got this constantly running simulation in your head about what's going to happen whenever you go and whatever's going on around you. So that's you use that to navigate. So okay, so if I go here in this context, I should do like this. And so this is all built up from like 
however long you've been alive, all the memories you have, all the experiences, all your attitudes, all your beliefs, all your expectations and your, your goals. And so all this is like smushed together to give you this mental model of how the world works. And you use that to navigate life. So when something comes along and becomes a part of that, it becomes a part of you. This is why like relationship breakups can be so traumatizing because when you've been together with someone a long time, they become a huge part of your understanding, your expectation of how the world works. So when a relationship, a long-term relationship ends, it's not just, no, I don't have a partner anymore. It's that all my understandings, all my expectations, all my predictions, all my you know, long-term plans, they've been ruined. They've, they're gone now. And the brain finds that really stressful. Mm. Is that why we call people our rock, maybe? Yes, exactly. Because they're, exactly. they're so solid yeah. and immovable. Yeah, yes. they are the foundation of our understanding of how the world works now. Because yeah. So people like you, if they've been convinced that Brexit was good or bad, whatever it is, that becomes part of their identity, especially if it's ongoing and there was a huge campaign and everything like that. But then when someone comes along and says, actually, that's wrong, what you're saying is your understanding of the world is incorrect. So all the, all the decisions you're making, all the beliefs you have, those are wrong. And the brain does not like that. It's like trying to kick pillars from under, your, uh, under the foundation of your, your mind. So if I believe this, and this guy's telling me it's completely wrong, which means which questions everything, I think. This guy over here is telling me it's right in three words or less. So I'm far more inclined to go with this guy who is uh, telling me what I want to hear. We can become rather fond of our idiots, though. Um, You have to say that, uh, is this a problem? George W. Bush being a case in point with his many fantastical utterances. Um, Obviously, maybe the, the king of those is they misunderestimated me. Why do we become fond of someone who is this fallible? Or this much of a clown sometimes in positions yeah. of power. There's a lot of things going on which contribute to this. A lot of internal biases and cognitive assumptions. But one thing is the status thing I mentioned earlier. Like you see someone who is big and more powerful and like has things that you want: power, wealth, uh, control, and you know that means they are higher status compared to us. Now, if you're a big fan of theirs, that's usually okay because like oh, like, I like this person. Like oh, they're doing what I want to do, and I approve of what they're doing. So I'm glad they've got what they've got. But any uh, demonstration of a flaw or inefficiency or like a, a weakness makes them lower status. So, and you feel like George W. Bush, obviously incredibly wealthy background, very powerful background, and obviously got the, the most powerful job in the world through means which didn't seem especially uh, fair or especially democratic. And that's you know, that's a whole other discussion. So, it's like, yeah, he's an idiot, but you know, he's, not an idiot. he's got all this all this stuff he's got. But then he goes, ah, oh, look, he's an idiot as well. It sort of it sort of defangs him a bit. It makes him related and you feel better like oh that guy's an idiot so you feel sort of reassured that yeah he may be the most powerful man in the world and with a nuclear arsenal at the touch of his button but he's stupid <laughs> and that's that's somehow reassuring <laughs> which is uh yeah so, I mean, we, we have it in this country too obviously when you know like you mentioned like the you know the einstein quote I mean, can you imagine boris johnson saying anything along those lines but you know he did play up his uh bumbling buffoon shtick you know like there's no need to have his hair like that or to be so un- un- unkempt all the time it was Clearly, a, a piece, a part he was playing to get people to like him. So, like, oh yes, he may be incredibly wealthy and incredibly narcissistic, but he's got messy hair, and I haven't got messy hair. So, obviously, I am. We are more equal than I thought. And yes, anyway, it's a big world. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you, you think he knew what he was doing? Very much so. Yes, with that. One of the things I think I do also mention in the book is that you know, politics really suffers when it becomes the reserve of the rich and powerful and people who always have been that. Because it becomes a game. It becomes people who don't never experience genuine consequences 
that becomes a real big problem because that's how we learn. You know, in, like I'm from a very working class background. Like I was a I went to a school of um, it's like over a thousand students, and it wasn't the most academically inclined <laughs> inclined school. Like I like to tell people, which is true, that my school was the school in the area that you got sent to if you got expelled from all the others. <laughs> and if you uh, got expelled from my school, you had to get a job or live in the woods. <laughs> there was no no other alternative. But you no, know, I was one of the few who liked studying. If you added up the physics, chemistry, and biology class, you got seven students, and three of them were me because I was the only one doing all the sciences. So I had you no. Know, not, not just that, but I had all the school's science averages on my shoulders. So if I failed, it was going to be a real big deal for everyone. So, you know, the pressure was on. But I never experienced the idea of, like, well, I don't care what I get in these exams. I'm set for life. So it, it changes you then. It changes your idea of what consequences are. Like, you take massive risks like, you know, let's, let's land some tax cuts because, you know, we'll, we'll be fine. You know, it doesn't give you that sense of perspective on how people will be affected and what consequences can be. So if all your, if all your losses are based in, you know, university de- debating clubs you will have a different uh, outlook on life compared to someone who could feasibly you know end up destitute just by missing a shift or something what i'm really interested in is i think that we have such a conflict with our authority figures in that we want them to you know almost take from the celebrity handbook at some point to be different from us and othered and more more clever and wise but we also need them to be normal people who've come from the same background to understand our issues how does that work what's the brain doing in wanting both and not being able to have either usually yeah it's a it's a, it's a dichotomy isn't it we want someone who is competent i guess that's what we really want but um, when it comes to politics because politics is so widespread now i think imagine like in the 80s when you wouldn't really hear about your uh, your local mp or the prime minister apart from a couple of newscast a day and maybe a newspaper so you weren't as exposed to people you weren't as exposed to the people running the country so you did get people who were more serious and more sort of you know bureaucratic you know like or just people with who, like politics was a job perhaps because they didn't have to be media savvy all the time and i suspect that came you know i think blay and the spin doctors maybe put a stop to that like they were regularly communicating with people but in ways which sounded approachable but without actually saying anything or promising anything so you get spin and stuff like that I think over time that worked because you had politicians saying reassuring words with no meaning. And so they couldn't be held accountable for everything. But then obviously that became the norm. And then you get people like maybe Nigel Farage, who just comes out and says things bluntly, which people understand and relate to. No, So a lot of complicated stuff's going on. The politicians keep saying stuff which doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't explain anything. This guy's telling me things which I can easily understand and it would sort things out. So we do want that. We do want someone to be honest with us, uh, especially when we're confronted with them on like an hourly basis now. But the idea that they you know, they don't know what they're doing isn't something we want as well. And I think one of the reasons we get people in politics who are objectively, based on their actions and the outcomes, unintelligent, is because for the average voter, there's too much of a divide between decision and consequence in politics. Because we're seeing now, as most people point out, the, the effects of Cameron and Osborne's austerity. Public services are on, you know, on their last legs, they're exhausted, they're underfunded. But people aren't saying, oh, this is because of David Cameron, because that was what, 10 years ago now. And the brain actually needs like a, a short delay between action and outcome in order to make the association. One thing politics does really well is delay and obfuscate cause and effect. And that's why you get people who sort of, they say, I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm going to, this is going to work. And, you know, 10 years later, it hasn't worked, but there's no real culpability there because people don't put one and two together, which maybe they should, but it, it is a complex thing. It's a very complex thing. So you can be a successful politician just by 
insisting you're competent and not actually having to ever prove it. See any newspaper today for for examples of this. (laughs) Absolutely. I want to quickly mention doom scrolling and whether we're enjoying the car crash unfold minute by minute on social media. Though a way that, you know, we may complain about who's in power, but there's some part of us enjoying them failing, even though it's ruining the lives of everybody. You see what I mean? I know that doesn't make sense, but what does social media do? Social media is, of course, a massive factor in modern politics and people's attitudes towards it. We have never been as exposed to our politicians in the past as we are now. And that can be a good thing because it means people have direct contact with their um, you know, with their constituents or their voters. So they get far more immediate and real-time feedback. But the nature of the online world warps how people interact and see things. So you get people saying, oh, well, like, I want people to tell me I'm good, so I'm going to make this controversial statement, which lots of people would agree with, and I'll get this positive feedback. If anyone tells me I'm wrong, I can say I'm being cancelled, and I can, I can block them. So it affects how politicians behave too, and not always, I think, rarely in a good way. And that's something to be concerned about. But when you are seeing like, you know, politicians are making these decisions which are causing unpleasant consequences for all concerned, it, there is a certain sense of schadenfreude about it. We do like to see that because we've been most people have been led to believe for the past several decades that politicians are you know they're all the same they're all after they all want power and wealth and money and stuff and to see someone elevated to the top of the, you know, the very top of society to see them mess up is reassuring again it comes to the whole you know, they are high status and now they've been brought low that makes me feel better because i've seen that i've experienced that I, that hasn't happened to me it happened to them so i can point and laugh and that makes me superior and the whole uncertainty thing is in when you know okay, politicians have made a decision and it's caused lots of bad consequences. You kind of say, well, I hope that doesn't affect me, uh, which your brain doesn't like because there's this huge uncertain cloud of possibilities out there. So you look online and find like Twitter feeds constantly updating. It's, oh, this is giving me information I need about the possible threats. And you feel compelled to keep looking at it because like, oh, this is, it doesn't stop. There's no like, <laughs> you, you very rarely get the end of Twitter, do you? It's like, ah, Twitter's done for the day, new episode tomorrow. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, so like, and the brain loves novelty as well. So new things which reassure us or explain things are always going to be compelling. So have you had a couple of lines of who we should vote for? What should we be looking out for amongst the, the flim-flam and <laughs> bigoted one-liners? What's the guide? What's the Dean Burnett guide to voting? I will always say if you can vote for someone of a not-rich background, you should probably generally do that. And not, not necessarily saying that all rich people are bad, because they're not. That's a completely wrong thing to say. But it's when you get too many of the same people working together in a group, they become distorted this thing called groupthink you know you stick to only people of your own background and your own ideological ideological views the conventional wisdom would be that people of a group like that their eventual stance would be an average of what the group thinks but that's not how people work we become more extreme as part of a like-minded group because we want to impress our fellows you want to be the best one at this great point so you become more and more uh, extreme as a result of that it's a tactic used in lots of cases like like weight loss groups they have this, when they have slimmer of the week it's like, yeah, okay, we all agree that we want to lose weight. And this week, this person is the best at losing weight. So everyone else in the group goes, well, I want to be that next week. So I'm going to work even harder to lose more weight. And then it becomes a sort of a contest. Everyone else goes, oh, no, they, they win next week. I want to be the one. And you start off with better exercise and more regular diet. And now you've got everyone 
jogging on the spot 12 hours a day eating nothing but lettuce and shadows and that's and that's just bad it's, it, people have become extreme so yeah a variety of politicians of different backgrounds would i would argue be essential and obviously i'm you know welsh mining stock i'm not going to be uh, <laughs> of one particular party support base but um at this point you should be voting for people who have been in opposition who have experienced loss or experienced being thwarted because those in the government right now haven't. They've had 12 years of complete dominance and obviously playing politics on easy mode, as they say. And they don't know what it's like to, to have to work to do what, they, what, what they've got. It's, um, oh, I'm sure they disagree with that. But compared to someone who's been like in the Labour or the Lib Dems or the Greens this whole time, these are people who clearly do believe what they're doing. Because they say politicians are all the same. You know, like, oh, they just want power and wealth and money. If, you, if that's what all you wanted, why on earth would you be a Liberal Democrat? Because clearly it's not going to happen. So um, so the people who are in the Lib Dems, right, you think of them, they clearly do have, they, you know, they do believe what they're saying, or like it's more likely to be the case. So, um, so yeah, so I think, you know, at this point we need, uh, I think we, we, we need a fresh set of uh, just opinions on everything because <laughs> things have gone yes. a bit far now. I would very much agree. Dean Burnett, thank you so much for joining us. It's been wonderful to listen to you. Thanks for having me. Great. And for those of you listening, there's a new edition of The Bunker every morning. So please do subscribe and you can back us on Patreon. Just search Bunker Podcast Patreon for extra goodies. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Sean Pattenden. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer was Kasia Tomashevich. Our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>